Scott Miller is an author and independent journalist. He has written and researched about border issues for more than 15 years, the last eight as an independent journalist and writer. His works include Storming the Wall, Climate Change, Migration, Homeland Security, Border Patrol Nation, Dispatches from the Front Lines of Homeland Security, and Build Bridges, Not Walls, A Journey to a World Without Borders. He has also been contributing editor on border and immigration issues for the NACL report on the Americas and its column, Border Wars. Todd Miller, welcome to One Planet Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. No, thank you. We've been so moved by the way you bring home some of these, what to many are the abstract issues. They don't live near border walls. They don't even maybe come into contact to the real stories and the human lives. Uh, and those lives are affected by climate change and um, environmental refugees. And just to give people um, uh, who haven't discovered your writing yet, I believe you're going to read from Storming the Wall. Yeah, yeah, Storming the Wall. Um, and this is a book that was published in 2017. And the subtitle is Climate Change, Migration and Homeland Security. On the, on the coast of the small Philippine island of Marinduque, a man in a black shirt and blue shorts walks up the shore carrying a baby in his arms. Just as has been forecast by climate scientists around the world, littered all around him are bits and pieces of the quote unquote future. There is a house so devastated by the rising sea and surging waves that its exposed frame looks like ribs puncturing its crumbling wall. An uprooted palm tree lies nearby like a corpse in the gravelly sand. Soon the sea will entirely claim the ruined house and most likely many more homes, farms, schools, and businesses farther inland. This small community, Balogo, which is on the island where my grandmother was born and raised, appears, like so many others across the globe, to be on the verge of being completely washed away. The father and the child look out into the gray stormy sea. Typhoon Inang's center is far away in the Northern Philippines, but the waves still come crashing in. This storm will kill 14 people after battering communities with sustained winds of 80 plus miles per hour. The punishment includes tornadoes, flooding, and landslides that temporarily displace 34,000 people. Horrific as this may sound, by Filipino standards, this is a minor storm. Following Super Typhoon Haiyan, everything is relative to that 265 mile wide machine of wind and water that smashed the island of Leyte in November 2013, killing more than 10,000 people and uprooting hundreds of thousands more. So yeah. what you describe there, this is the beginning of this story. And I I think also for you, I know, I know that, you know, you've really committed your, your body of work to talking about border walls and those who are severely affected by climate change, but going home in a sense to your, where your grandmother was born, uh, I think in a way it even opened up your awareness and your feelings for 
what people are experiencing? It did. It certainly did. I, that was the first time I'd been to the island of Marinduque, which is where my grandmother is from and was from. And it was quite startling to go there on a research trip as well to learn about what was happening to the island due to the climate crisis. And so I interviewed with um, the person of the Marinduque from the, the Marinduque province official that was in charge of looking at a forecast, you know, looking at what was going to happen in the future. And so here I am on my grandmother's island for the first time. And really, there was those effects of thinking back into the like 1930s and the thinking about this island and trying, actually, I was trying to find, you know, was there any family members that were still there? And I did find family members, but they were mainly in Manila now. And so, but one of the things was, you know, that I learned out of many things was that there was this problem of sea level rise on, on the island. And the person I was talking to sent me to a particular place. And that's exactly where I started storming the wall in this place. And I did, I come up to the, the house that I described. And at that moment, and, and this was in 2015, that was the first time I had seen with my own eyes, you know, the, the impacts of sea level rise in that sense, where it was actually destroying something, the lay, the waves are lapping in and out of the house. And then soon thereafter, I interviewed a, a fisherman and he told me, he showed me, pointed out to a buoy that was in the water about 15 or 10 meters out. And this buoy was just rocking there. And he said, well, the shore used to be there. And so, and then, and, and at this time, there was that surge from the typhoon that was way in the north. It was pretty far away, but there was still a, a minor surge. And then the next thing that happened was a, a man walked to the shore and he was holding a child. And the child was one year, maybe one year. I remember seeing the child's black hair just kind of going around in the wind. And I stopped in my tracks in that moment. And I thought about that child. And part of this was influenced by the fact that I was about to have my own child. So I, was, I wasn't I was only thinking of the past, right, for my grandmother, but I was thinking of the future, right? So my, my kind of scope of consciousness was almost two centuries, if I thought to the end of my, my coming, my unborn, still unborn child's life. So seeing this child in the small community of Balogo and seeing what I've heard about the sea level rise, and, they had, and the fishermen told me that they had already backed up the community a little bit because of it, I began to think about this child's life. What was, what would happen during his lifetime in 15 years and 20 years and 30 years, would there be, would the sea still move in? Would they have to move the, their community back even further? Would the salt water get into the irrigation water and destroy their rice? Would uh, they move to another place like Boac, which is a capital of the province or Manila, which is the capital of the Philippines, or move out in across the border, international borders of some sort. And that whole thing really set the tone for the book Storming the Wall, and where I really try to look at those connections, those connections of, of what's going on with displacement, how it's manifesting around the world, and what happens when people who are displaced by these sorts of events what happens to these people when they have to cross international borders without documents? 
that really started combining my work, my previous work, I should mention this, before I wrote Storming the Wall was mainly about looking at border systems, borders, particularly the US-Mexico border, the buildup of the US-Mexico border, the incredible amounts of money and resources that have been put in the, into the US-Mexico border since primarily the September 11th, 2001. And of course, we you hear a lot about Donald Trump, but there was significant buildup before then. And so Storming the Wall really was a book that looked at what I was looking at previously with borders and then combining that with climate change, the effects of climate change, and then looking at that in and what that is in this present moment and what that could be in the future. Yes. So borders, I mean, it's interesting because I I didn't really realize, I think that you identified that there's, isn't it in the 70s or is it now in the yeah. 80s of border walls around the world? I don't know what it is now, but I would imagine that it could be in the 80s. In the Storming the Wall, there was seven, I believe I used the 70 was the number that, that I used. And that was border walls since, well, when the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, there were 15 border walls around the world. And then when I was writing Storming the Wall in this, we'll say 2017, there were 70 border walls. And they, and they were being built in an accelerated fashion in the post 9-11, in the post 2001. So you could look at the years 2005 or 2015 and see lots and lots of border walls being constructed around the globe. And so you could, so this, this idea of the border wall is very prevalent, not only in the United States, but around the world. Yes. So in one sense, you know, to heighten, you know, security. And another sense, it's criminalizing, you know, a basic, you know, urge to survive. People who are trying to cross borders and people don't, as you know, don't lightly leave their homes and their livelihoods um, unless it's been taken away from them somehow. So they're really like battling to survive, as you've seen firsthand. And it's, interesting the questions that you pose in your books if we could somehow divert you know some of the funds used to create these walls and to militarize them to you know support life on the other side of the wall so people don't have to come over or programs to help people coming over enter society and you know it just it's like the like a mismanagement of finances and our humanity and it's quite interesting I felt the questions you pose I don't know if it's something that we can really imagine but let's think about it is it possible to imagine a borderless world and 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 what does that mean when you know your impulse to help uh, each, each other is criminalized if, if you help someone who's termed an illegal you become a criminal yes that's in fact um the questions that I grappled with in my most re recent book that, that was published uh, this year called Build Bridges, Not Walls, looks at this, tries to imagine a world, a, a borderless world, and borderless world in the sense of the political boundaries and looking at how political boundaries came to be, how often they were, political boundaries are, were imposed the boundary of the U.S.-Mexico border. I live in Tucson, Arizona, about 60 miles away from the U.S.-Mexico border. 
the uh, native people, the indigenous people that lived here were not asked about the border wall or the border before it was imposed. It was a project of what was the United States at that time, but an imposition of what the border was. And this border still remains. It, there's a ton of autumn people just to the south of me where I am now who have people on both sides of the borderline. And then and you can look at this across the world, you know, how how the political boundaries were put in place across the continent of Africa, for example. And the countries in Africa are kind of, the continent was carved up into countries. There was not like any sort of person from Africa, anywhere in the continent that was involved in these discussions. It all happened through what's known as a Berlin conference in 1883. And so it becomes a part of the colonization process, the idea of borders. Before that, you know, of course, there's borders here, there's natural borders, there's borders like rivers and mountains. And, you know, there's, there's borders, like even between peoples, you know, where different languages are spoken, those sorts of borders have are, um, were, I guess, uh, porous, right? People travel back and forth. There's, a, I mean, there's a whole world out there. So there's a lot of different things you can focus on. But this idea of political boundaries where nations with nation states is actually, while it might seem like it's been here forever, it's actually kind of recent. It's a new, it's a new project. It's centuries old, right? And then the idea of a border enforcement of militarizing borders, which is a phenomenon that's happening in many places, this kind of having a bureaucracy, right, with passports, like you either can come in or not. You either, you know, this, do you have the correct papers? That's even more recent, right? The passport, 100 years ago, the passport barely existed. So before that, there were no passports. And then the idea of putting up like armed border guards, building walls, building, putting up technologies, all the stuff that we're seeing now really didn't happen with any sort of with huge budgets until the 19 in the United States is the 1990s. And then particularly after the, after 2001. And so it's really recent to, to be able to imagine a world that doesn't have these things. I mean, even a world with that less border militarization, if, if you just want to take it in small steps, go back early 1990s, go back to the 1980s. It wasn't too long ago that the world was uh, composed of differently organized differently. And then when you think about climate change, you brought it up at the beginning, you know, the, of the question, I'll take the United States because this is where I am. I think this can apply so many other places around the world. Like this year, the border and immigration enforcement budget is $25 billion. That last year, it was also around $25 billion. When Donald Trump took office, it was $20 billion. When George W. Bush left office and Barack Obama took office in, in 2008, about $15 billion. When George W. Bush took office in 2001, it was about $4.5 billion. My point is, is these budgets are going up and up and up and up, no matter who is president within the United States, year after year after year after year after year. And we're talking a lot of money. If you go back to 1994, the budget for border and immigration enforcement was $1.5 billion. Now, $25 billion. Now, what do we have? We have nearly 21,000 armed border patrol agents, 700 miles of walls, billions of dollars of technologies, including the digitized like biometric systems and databases. A lot of the stuff that George Orwell warned against, right, is now here. And then 
one of the questions that I posed that you mentioned, why, like, I, I guess I can only talk about the United States in this sense, because I think it is more discussed in other parts of the world, but I think it does apply to other parts of the world too. But why isn't this discussed? That we think, oh, this, we have to have what, what is deemed border security. There's no questioning of it. There's, you put more, more and more money year after year. But what if you were to take what it is and unpack it and look at it and take then the needs of the world? And I would even say the needs within the country, like the U.S. Like in the United States, we have kids drinking contaminated water in Flint, Michigan. And then I would also argue that with climate change, when you're thinking about climate change, and the kind of climate financing or the climate adaptation and mitigation and those sorts of the, the emphasis that's being put on this um, as we try to shift the intergovernmental panel on climate change just mentioned, uh, there's going to have to be some sort of radical transformation to keep the temperature below the heating below 1.5 degrees centigrade. It would take a literal radical transformation for that to happen or to keep it even below two degrees centigrade. It would, it was going to take significant effort. So my thought, my thoughts on it, why is all this money going into these, into this border apparatus, this very expensive border apparatus when the real true security needs of the world in this sense, I'm talking from a U.S. perspective from the United States or the world what everyone is saying, what a whole host of climate scientists are saying is the climate crisis and that we have to do something major about it right now. Why is so much concentration in this, in the sense money being put into this when it could be so better, well, better spent in other places to really go after, I would think are the, the real security threats that we have at this moment. Yeah, it seems like we really need a lot of collaboration as we've had now with COVID. And it's a kind of double-edged sword because I'm really aware that some of the prevention measures for COVID are also great, not from my point of view, but great ways to strengthen the surveillance society. You know, you want a COVID alert while you've got to log in and we know where you are and maybe would give you mixed feelings and yet we want everyone to survive this, but we have to share this information. So yeah, I think it would be great to put those resources towards more collaboration and just to make it so that people don't have to leave their homes, which must be so distressing. I mean, you know, there's a real difference between being a refugee and an immigrant. And I'm sure with you who have who live so close to the border and who have visited this, the sites and the dehumanization that takes place. There was one thing that you cited, I think it was an internal document from the Pentagon, I'm, and I'm sure was it in Storming the Wall, just the kind of dehumanizing language around the creation and militarization of these walls is to stop like, you know, starving masses. It, it seemed like the opposite of what's written on the Statue of Liberty. So just tell us about that and some of the things that you've come across in your research. Sure. The report you're referring to is a 2003 Pentagon commissioned report and I think it was the title is something like an abrupt climate scenario. So the Pentagon asked some independent researchers that were connected with the Pentagon to look at what, what would happen in a sort of worst case scenario and what you're referring to. And I think I'm going to have to paraphrase because I can't remember exactly, but they find that the United States and Australia, they look at the U.S. and Australia, those two places, 
And they say that they'll have to put up defensive fortresses, quote unquote, to stop, as you said, unwanted, this is a direct quote, I think, unwanted starving immigrants. And in the case of the U.S., they look at the different regions where people will be coming from, mainly Latin America, or I think they say Mexico, Central America, South America, and the Caribbean. And with the Caribbean, in parentheses, is a, this is a, an especially severe problem, given what I don't, I think they leave it to your imagination to think about what happens with islands and in a hurricane path and in places where the sea level is rising considerably. That sort of assessment is, as I was doing research, particularly for storming the wall and digging into documents from the Pentagon, from particularly the U.S. government, from the Department of Homeland Security, I started to find assessments that were very similar to that 2003 assessment perhaps in more polished language, perhaps they didn't use the term unwanted starving immigrants, right? Like they did in that assessment, but basically saying the same thing, that the future, the term that was used quite often was a term called threat multiplier. So that term, as I've come to understand it, is a term that looks at the climate events as not necessarily the bigger threats. The threat, well, the hurricane is a threat The bigger threat from a national security point of view from these assessments that I was looking at, the bigger threat was what people would do after the hurricane hit, what people would do after they're displaced by the drought, what people would do after they can no longer live in their homes because the sea is rising, what people would do when there's water scarcity. You know, those are the things that they meant, they meant by threat multiplier, the quote unquote unwanted starving immigrants, right? And the, just another way to put it. And you see that assessment after assessment after assessment. And what I started to do was look at it in terms of the border. Is there anything that the border has to do with this? Are they talking about building up the border because of this? And lo and behold, it didn't even take me that long to dig into this information, dig into some of the documents from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security to see that, yes, they were contemplating climate. What is somewhat comical about this is that in the U.S., a lot of people would assume that the Department of Homeland Security or would assume that the Pentagon wasn't thinking about climate change at all. And it's like, wrong. (laughs) They are very much thinking about it. They're very much looking at assessments 30, 50, 100 years into the future looking at all kinds of scenarios. And there's no denial. In fact, it's the exact opposite. In all the assessments that are future assessments, climate plays a huge, huge part in it. And they actually even look at different degrees of possible warming scenarios. And all of them have incredible amounts of displacement happening around the world. And then on top of that, without having any sort of discussion about any sort of status, right? that I've seen any serious discussion of a climate status. Rather, it's, oh, there's going to be more borders. Oh, there's going to be more borders around the world. Oh, there's going to be more borders that stop people. And then when I looked at specific Department of Homeland Security documents, they talk about, while recognizing, like they'll look at Guatemala, for example, or Honduras, and they'll say, oh yeah, we know, like they know, that droughts are affecting people's 
productivity as far as small farmers in rural Central America. They know that. And then the answer to that is from a Department of Homeland Security perspective is to then look at it through, oh, we have to quote unquote, prepare our borders for mass migrations. And so that's that's the kind of thing that I found on those realms. So there was one thing that I was curious about is, is that I did read Storming the Wall. I read some chapters of Storming the Wall and I noticed that there's this there's this fear that you mentioned through like the Pentagon and this fear of displacement. And part of me wants to know where does this fear really stem from? Because I think that when especially when it comes down to finding out or basically imagining a borderless world, the fears has to be resolved or understood in order to sort of find some sort of solution to the problem. Yeah, that's a very good question because they're not forthcoming about that, right? In the assessments, they're not saying, oh, we fear this or that, you know, it's just, oh, these are the, this is what we think is going to happen. I think you're correct totally by, by where is it coming from and what is, what is at the root of the fear? And you can look at this from many different angles. I mean, one angle from a climate perspective that I look at, I would look at is, you know, the United States is the top historic emitter of greenhouse gas emissions, right? There's a historic responsibility in that. There's also the fact that it still is the top emitter, even year after year, or one of the top emitters. And like the U.S. government, of course, as we, we don't have to get into this now, but it's very much beholden to big corporations as well. There's a lot of money going into the U.S. federal government from fossil fuel industries, for example, also border industries, also military industries, you name it. And that creates a fact of you here in, in the United States, some people saying that the U.S. needs to lead the world and and finding a climate solution. And it's, and it's almost laughable, or it is laughable to me, at least, you know, the, the country's been a top emitter for so long, and the government's shown to be beholden to these fossil fuel companies. And if that's the case, then one of the big fears is losing a status quo, right? The kind of status quo of the world where a world of climate crisis and a world of dreadful inequality, and a world of quite frankly, racialized borderlines and a kind of scaffolding of the status quo that keeps a business as usual running, humming, going, even at the expense of destruction. And as we're seeing right now, this is destruction while climate change, of course, affects everyone across the globe. It hits some places harder than others, particularly places where there's not necessarily the infrastructure to withstand whatever the impact is. What I see is like this from a U.S. point of view, there's a fear of losing, of losing what is quite frankly an unjust world for most people, but it's a world that maybe simplified where the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer. And from a climate perspective, you have a, a divide between the environmentally secure to a certain degree and the environmentally exposed. My name is Emily Liu. I am a contributing podcaster of the One Planet podcast and in graduate school for Biodefense Masters. It has been an interesting experience with Todd Miller talking about storming the wall and the effect of climate change on immigration. 
He also talks about the potential reasoning of why there is a resistance towards immigration through these border walls. Keep listening to hear about efforts towards climate restoration on these borders, as well as the stories of immigrants crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. U.S. we know is a debtor nation in terms of money, but also in terms of the imbalance of emissions. So really the responsibility is to take in some of the people that the emissions, for one is making a balance sheet that the overuse of natural resources has led to this global warming. And yet all the planning is about putting up walls and just defending what's ours as ours. And so it's dispiriting. And what are some of the, as you travel around, as you discuss with people who have approached the idea of border walls and of environmental refugees uh, with a different mindset, what are some of the positive solutions or approaches that you're finding? And I also also want to ask, because as I said, people don't have this experience of going to these border walls and seeing the treatment of people. It's really unconscionable. Can you just also describe what you've seen and witnessed and heard about? Yeah, sure. I like how the border systems are set up. The U.S. version of it is probably a good one to look at because the, the U.S. exports it and other countries come actually to train and observe the U.S. border system and then bring elements to their countries. But it's set up in a, a system called prevention through deterrence. And what essentially it does is blockade traditional crossing places. By traditional crossing places, I would say before this doctrine, prevention through deterrence, started more or less in 1994, but it's been built up since then. And so the whole idea is that before people would cross back and forth and the border was semi-porous, there was a border patrol, of course, but it was a whole different scenario pre-1994. Post-1994, walls are built in different urban cities, more border patrol agents are hired, more technologies. The idea was the blockade, these traditional crossing places, and thus forced people to go into, in the case of where I live, the desert, the hot desert in the summer, the desert that it's literally impossible to carry enough water. It's very difficult to carry enough food. And since really the late 1990s, and I remember when we started hearing reports in Southern Arizona of people finding remains of people or bodies in the desert of people crossing the border. And then it was interesting because you went, there were these remains recovered. And then you go back and see the policy of 1994. And that is in the policy that by forcing people to go through the desert and walk through the desert, it might cause mortal danger. And by God, it has right now in 2021, there's been more than 8,000 remains of people who have been found in the desert. And that's an undercount. Most people think it's three to 10 times more because the desert is so vast. It's so huge. And there's so many families that are looking for their lost loved ones. And so it's anticipated that it could be 30,000 or even higher. And the stories like you hear from people are, I can share one of them. I have many, many interviews. This one, I tend to think of often because the person According to her story, she died and came back to life. And she was walking with a group through the Arizona desert. They were walking for about three days and they ran out of water. And so 
after they ran out of water, she describes like walking and seeing hallucinations. It was a mountainous area. She was walking through the mountains. The mountains started to talk, right? It became to that point. Then they finally arrived to a road, maybe four or five days in, and they all decided to give themselves up. But she describes a scenario where she looked around and she saw people's noses spontaneously bursting with blood and all around her. Then she passed out. And when she woke up, she was in a hospital. In the hospital, there was a machine that was connected to her. And she was convinced that she had died and come back to life. And then immediately after that, when I interviewed her, which was three days later, she was deported. Deported right into a place, Nogales, which she didn't know. She'd never been to. And when I encountered her, she was in a migrant shelter for women. And I interviewed her and she told me this story. And it's one of those, those stories that are so vivid. And at the same time, there's so many common threads with so many people that I've interviewed who have crossed the border, who have similar stories. And in a way, there's so many people who have died crossing the border in the way that it's designed to do, that she was in a way fortunate. She's still alive, which given her circumstance, I don't want to say lucky, but there's a fortune to being still alive after that experience. And so that's what I see a lot here. I've studied other borders and you see the Mexican-Guatemala border has similar characteristics. The, the border in Southern Europe where people cross through the Mediterranean and you hear about ships capsizing. There's that similar kind of prevention through deterrence, like the journey's too dangerous. You might die. Death is a part of the equation. Yet people still do it for various reasons, including, including of course, climate. And that's which brings me to the first part of your question, which I talk about in Storming the Wall as well. There was Michael Gerand, I think his name is, and he's a, from Columbia University. He wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post several years ago, but his op-ed was looking at historic emissions from different countries and then saying that these countries have to take in that percentage of their historic emissions of refugees into the country. So basically for the United States at that time, it was 27%. Since then, I've actually looked at it yesterday and then it's 30% now. So whatever it is, 30%, 27%, it's, that's how much of the world's refugee population, according to what Gerard was uh, arguing in the op-ed for Washington Post that the United States should bring in. So there's those sorts of conversations that do not happen in this country. <laughs> Maybe they'll have it in other places, but right now it doesn't even matter who's in power there's just no conversation around this, though I could say there's probably a little bit more now than there was with Trump, but still there's just not with even with Joe Biden and administration, the idea of discussing climate refugees is maybe a little bit more on the radar, but there's nothing moving forward in any sort of sense. But at the same time, the other part of what you mentioned was going around and doing all this research and going to borders around the world. And I've been to so many now, not just the U.S.-Mexico border or the U.S.-Canada border or the Caribbean border, but also like the Mexico-Guatemala border, the Guatemalan-Honduran border, the Dominican Republic-Haitian border, the Kenyan-Tanzania border, the Jordanian-Syrian border, the maritime border around the Philippines, Israel and Palestine. And so looking and studying all these different borders has also brought me into contact with lots of people doing lots of other things. 
and doing things differently. One example I can think of immediately is on the U.S.-Mexico border, where there's a binational organization where people from both sides of the border have come together to do a water harvesting project. And mind you, like in Arizona, where I live, we've been in a 15-year drought. Actually, this summer, we've gotten a lot of rain. So let's hope maybe we're, you know, mitigated at least a little bit. But I have never seen the southern Arizona so dry, so parched, even the cactus. Cactus, which can withstand, you know, lots of heat and lots of lack of precipitation were wilting. But this project, this binational project, which it's a binational project, you have to ignore the border, subvert the border in many ways, started doing this water harvesting project, putting not just a little bit of money into it, a fraction of what they put into building up the border wall. What's so interesting about it is the project happens right where you can see the border wall. You can see the border wall right from where the project is happening. And what they have done is they've put like gabions, piled up rocks, trincheras, they call them, and in places where water flows during monsoon, in the monsoon where the rainy season, and it slows down the water that the soil drinks, was able to suck it down a little better instead of erosion. And then the kind of natural habitat will grow back, meaning like the desert grasses, the trees, desert willows, that sort of thing. And simultaneously, the water table, this is the most amazing thing that I learned about this particular project. The water table, every other subregion, the water tables are going down, 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 down. This particular region is going up and it went up 30 feet, which when I said it to them, I said, that's a miracle. You know, how could that be? And they looked at me, the people that were giving me the tour and showing me the project, they said, it's not a miracle. We're piling up rocks. We're doing something differently here than was being done before. And to me, that's an example. It's very small scale. And the impact globally is very minuscule, but it had an impact in that locality, right? And if that connected with other things, you know, other projects, who knows? And then at the same time, like I asked the project managers, like, what would you do if you had the money that was being spent on this border wall that we could see right before our eyes, right? It was like a $20 billion budget going to that year. What would you do with $20 billion? And the answer was they just started talking and gushing and saying places I'd never even heard of. That's how far the wide the scope could be, like places that I'd never heard of before, right? That were to the South. But the point was that one of the people that I interviewed said this could be life and death. And the point that I took from it later on retrospect, thinking about it, was that why again, why are we building up this border wall apparatus and surveillance and that incarcerates people and forces them to the desert, forces them to face death, when the real threat is this other thing, which is the drought, which is causing the water scarcity unlike we've ever seen before, and in Mexico and the United States, and why like people are coming together to solve this problem. And I use that example because it's a vivid one. That example I've seen everywhere. It just manifested itself that way there. There's all kinds of projects where people know what's going on in their home communities and they are actively coming together. So this idea of instead of being separated, coming together, defying these separation borders, right? Coming together to find a solution to a common problem. 
And I think there's so many examples of that around the world that I've seen left and right. And to me, you know, after I wrote Storming the Wall, I thought about that and I thought, well, I could have written the other book, right? Where there's so many small or medium size or sometimes larger projects and you put them all together and I would have had a book, you know, that was two stories high of information, of cataloging everything. So yeah, I think there's a lot to be hopeful about and a lot of like things, including the project that you're doing here. You know, there's so much, so much to be hopeful. So many people that are concerned, so many people are just bringing awareness and doing like on the ground projects and trying to like shape new ways of thinking about these things. And that's where I put my heart. I'm like there, that's where I'm going to be, you know, obviously I think a lot of the borders and what's going on there, but my heart is over here, right? My heart is in this kind of on the ground movement towards another world. Exactly. And that's so heartening. There's so many of these grassroots things that take, you know, people will come together. You can't stop love, you know, people will come together. And we do have this kind of urge to help one another, you know, regardless of laws that might criminalize it. I do think a lot about that, about how funds might be going excessively. We know there's this huge black budget you know, for the military. And, and I just think about, wow, if, if even just a fraction of those that are sent, you know, to other countries fighting in wars that aren't winnable, impossible to extract yourself from, you know, peaceably. And if that was spent on, you know, real homeland security, you know, climate security spent on building, you know, solar panels and all these other renewable energy sources, that would really make me happy. I, I know that people, and I also feel like, as you say, a lot of the people who are displaced due to climate change, you know, they are the small farmers. So they have an incredible amount of knowledge and obviously, you know, resilience and determination and resourcefulness to cross deserts and risk their life, you know, to enter the country. So maybe we should be listening to them because they can wake the rest of us up I mean, even if, you know, no matter how aware you are, we still haven't felt it in the way that they felt it, that they had to uproot themselves. So if we could listen, listen to some of their knowledge, you know, coming from the farming communities or where they've come from, their ability to cross borders and live within their limits, I'm sure, you know, not using a fraction of the energy or the water that we just throw away, throwing away food and the wastefulness gets to me, um, but take it, as you say, it's a kind of a learning opportunity. Um, I feel like when people are given a place in your country and I feel like they no longer have, they've left behind their home. I wouldn't say that my grandparents were refugees, but they were immigrants and they did face those things. People are grateful when you kind of embrace them and they'll give back. That's what I feel. Like if you show them respect instead of putting them in cages, they'll share what they know and they'll give back more because you've cared about them as long as you include them in your family. Yeah, that just makes so perfect sense. It's unbelievable that such cruel systems are enacted, you know, given what I would argue that you're talking about the nature of life, like just as simple as if somebody's nice to somebody else, the odds of them being nicer back are, are very high, right? And if somebody's mean to somebody else, 
who knows, you know, but this whole idea of this building, it just makes no sense in so many different ways. And I want to underscore that point you make about so many small farmers are are the ones that are most impacted. And they're like, from my people that I've talked to, particularly in Mexico and Guatemala and Honduras, I mean, people know like, like very vividly what's going on. If the soil shifts just a little bit, if the rains don't come in that particular week when they usually come, or, you know, the kind of farmer's almanacs that are used in, in different places, whether they're actual written down or passed from generation to generation verbally. And that sort of knowledge on planetary systems and how farming works. And then when you talk to indigenous people, when I've talked to indigenous people in different places, the stewardship of forests and that, you know, the stewardship of different environments, of course, there's, you know, there's a wide variety of different peoples, the sort of common thread of a stewardship of environmental areas that it just seems so obvious what you say, like what right now is, it seems like there's so much knowledge and wisdom that is not being listened to or not being heard. And that to go back to the border thing, to be able to hear that or listen, the border thing has to kind of go away. Right. And then that from those perspectives, I believe, you know, thinking about what you were just saying and just thinking about this whole dilemma or conundrum we're in globally that's where I think maybe the real conversations, the real like solutions, potential solutions at least could happen in a way that they're not happening in this moment, where it seems like overly dependent on certain people to come up with solutions while ignoring other people. And then on top of that, like you say, a lot of the people that we should be listening to and having these conversations with are instead displaced. So they could talk about those sorts of things and having to move from place to place and oftentimes across these border areas. And I'm sure like people, if you had a really good study interviewing people in those sorts of situations where you simultaneously, you know, talk to people and talked about their wisdom and their knowledge at the same time, had them talk about instead of being able to share this knowledge, we're having to worry about being displaced and worrying about our children being displaced and that idea of thinking into future generations, right? And having to risk our lives, you know, and a sort of report like that, that might land on the global consciousness, I think would be quite beneficial. But yeah, I really think your points are, are very poignant. Thank you. I had a crazy vision as I was listening to the numbers that you were mentioning of how much it costs to build and maintain quite expensive, these border walls. I just imagined it must be less expensive to actually plant trees. I had this Perfect. kind of strange vision. If you can imagine, instead of borders, we had, you know, de-desertification via just tree planting, you know, and bringing back the water that way. As we know, it does an enormous amount in terms of, you know, retaining the water and uh, regenerating the soil as well. I actually looked into that, <laughs> believe it or not, in the Build Bridges, Not Wells, the book that came out this year. Um, there was a report about planting trees that came out. And I did this calculation on U.S. Border Patrol agents, which is about 21,000. So I, I did a calculation of the 21,000 border patrol agents, if they were to plant a one tree a day, and I use the formula of this report, and if they were to do that for 65 years, they could reduce, I forget exactly, but it's something like one third of the carbon that's in the atmosphere. 
I was just underscoring your point that you made that, wow, you know, what a simple, yet beautiful, elegant, and very practical idea that might be. There's certainly a lot of, you know, it's interesting because we've done some interviews about reversing the deserts or reducing the bringing um, water back to the Sinai. And there are a lot of different programs to do that. So it's very nice to put money into things like that and not displacing people. I, we certainly hope that it's something with uh, your books that really bring awareness to it and help us just really examine the systems that take place in our name and how we might imagine a better future for us all. So I guess as you think back as you think about future generations and the kind of world we're leaving to them as you think back on teachers and experiences that have been important to shaping your life as a journalist you know you know what are some of those lessons that were essential and what would you like young people to know preserve and remember yeah so I think with I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old and I think I'm just constantly thinking about young people and the generations to come and the Iroquois in the U.S., indigenous peoples that were, of course, here before the U.S. existed, but the sort of wisdom that the Iroquois uses to look seven years in, in the past for wisdom and then project that seven generations into the past for wisdom and then project that when they're planning take the seven generations from the past, bring it to the table as far as wisdom is concerned, and then think seven generations into the future when you're doing the planning. So you're thinking of your great, 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 great grandchildren. To me, that's, I find myself more at least trying to do that. Like, like the way we started this conversation on my um, grandmother's island and then the Philippines, it was only one generation each way, right? Well, three generations or maybe even four generations, right? My grandmother's generation, my generation, and which would include my parents' generation, and then my child at the time, unborn's generation. And that was really profound experience for me to really like embody that and think of it in that way. And, and to be able to even do that more and to extend yourself even further back and forward. I think that's the way that I want to think of things. That's the way that I'm trying to talk to my own children, <laughs> you know, and look, you know, as we go forward and think about this world, like right now, I talk a lot with my five-year-old about the border wall and he's had his experiences with the border patrol and yelling at him. And, but one of the things that he does, he sees that I don't see as well is that we'll go to the border wall and he'll look at it and we'll talk to people across it, across the border wall. And, but he'll look at it and go, why, why are we using this material for this? Like, why can't, like this, is, he doesn't say it like that, right? He's a five-year-old, but he'll say, why can't we use this? Why can't we build bikes? One time he said, why can't we take an excavator, which is the word that he just learned about the machinery take down the border wall completely and then use the metal then to build bikes. And I went, 
well, <laughs> yes, yeah, that's exactly exactly what I think we should do because that does it all, right? Like you're taking what has been the material, you're seeing a use of it that's terrible, and then you're transforming the use of it into something else that's a bike that's you know beneficial for you know what's going on environmentally and the climate going forward. And so those are the things. So it's like, as I try to teach him, he teaches me. And I think that sort of back and forth of teaching and having these discussions and thinking about these discussions and bringing in like my grandmother or my other grandparents or my great grandparents and your great grandparents and everyone's great grandparents and, and having those conversations. And, and all of a sudden, like as, if you go seven generations back and seven generations forward, maybe these nation states are always trying to confine ourselves to kind of dissipate because so many people's stories are so all over the place right and I think like those sorts of conversations are super important and of course then the action component following them is also super important yes and Emily what has this conversation made you reflect on and want to take action the main thing I was thinking about is about where there are certain places where people can donate like funds projects that have been going on around the world. So I was thinking about what could people do? And like, if they can't be there physically, if there are any funds or any places where people could donate money and like, and help organize funds towards these organizations, if they can't be there physically. Yeah, that's something that people can do for sure. There's so many, you know, there's so many, everyone needs funds. Oh, it seems to be I mean, I guess there's some NGOs that are pretty wealthy, but most of them are not. And non-governmental organizations, but also grassroots efforts, movements, right? The sort of, you have like the actual physical projects and then you have the movements, the movements that could sweep the change and, you know, pressure for the change. Seems like for campaigns and to execute good campaigns and to do any project. The one I mentioned on the US-Mexico border you know, all they're doing is is relocating rocks, right? I mean, and they're doing more than that, but that's as simple as that. Like, it's not even anything technologically sophisticated. It's just putting rocks, piling them up in the washes is an ancient tradition to do this. And it doesn't take much resources at all. But even so, if, if they had more, it could be part, it could go further than this in this little area where they're doing it. What I think could happen is if, if there's more of a coordinated effort connecting like that project with the movement over there, with another project over there, with another project across the continent or another project across this ocean, you know, and then you have this more of this kind of united global front, which I think could be really interesting, perhaps powerful. Because then the little project suddenly is associated with a bigger thing, which includes all these other things. But all I can say is I think you're correct. If people are so inspired to be a part of this and they can't as much with their own getting out there themselves, then the option of finding a project, maybe that speaks to each individual person that's concerned of it, concerned about this, and maybe diverting money that you feel like you can afford into these projects. I think that that's a great idea. Yes, I think, yeah, there are wonderful NGOs and small grassroots organizations uh, doing beautiful work without 
anyone really shining a light on them. Of course, we hear about it in your book. So it really inspires us to do what we can in our own communities or in whatever way that we can. So we want to thank you, Todd Miller, for exposing uh, the human stories and injustices taking place around the world due to climate change the experiences of refugees and climate refugees, and what is happening on our borders. When we see into the future, we can develop a counter vision, build bridges, not walls, and work collectively for a better tomorrow. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for bearing witness and for adding your voice to the One Planet Podcast. One Planet Podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interviews producer on this podcast was Emily Liu. Digital media coordinator was Hannah Story Brown. The music was written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you have enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in the One Planet podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.